Thank you, ladies and lady and gentlemen. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my bride's not with me today. She's uh, out of town, much to my dismay. But uh, you give them the right to vote, and they just run off and do <laughs> wrong. And <laughs> I'll hear about that later on, I'm sure. But anyway, um, you know, rare is the topic nowadays that we would address that is not very emotionally and politically charged on both sides of the aisle, if you will, depending upon your flavor of politics and value system. And um, that makes it difficult for me at times to know how to address things with y'all um, because I know that many of you, if not almost all of you, have very strong views on things. And um, I don't spend all week find it, trying to find ways to offend you or upset you or create a wall between us. Actually, I, I, I spend all week long, I really do, trying to do the opposite. To bless you and encourage you and challenge you, uh, but to build a bridge between me and you and between my God and the God that I hope is yours, that I, that I pray is yours. Um, I've said a, a number of times over the last month, month and a half, um, I cannot communicate to you how my studies in the first few chapters of Genesis have impacted me personally, spiritually, uh, in my relationship with the Lord, my, my, my understanding of the Scripture. Um, I have discovered, I'm 62 years old. I've been doing this for 40, over 40 years. But in the, the, in the last, this year, I'll just say this year, as I've taken some time to really pour over the first few chapters of Genesis, um, I just have recognized truths in the Scriptures that either I have been ignorant of, nobody taught me, or the people that I read, they didn't, address these things they didn't bring these things out so either I was I've been ignorant of them or I've worse I've just ignored them and or neglected them but I don't want to do that anymore and uh, you know that's the nice thing we can change and we can grow even if we're old we can change and grow and get better and get more wise. And um, we, if we want to, you know, we can. We don't have to just stay in our old ruts uh, if, we don't, if we're tired of that. Um, I'm just going to be real honest with you. 
in my studies of Genesis, the first few chapters, one of the things that I've been reminded of is how my spiritual heritage, the, the, I'm not talking about a specific church, but the Christianity that I was, that I grew up in, but more importantly, the Christianity that I was saved in and discipled in and matured in and began to serve in and the Christianity that I began to proclaim, I've just been so mindful of at times that Christianity, my Christianity, has fallen on the wrong side of many issues that are important to God. And that is spoken to you with shame and embarrassment. I'll give you two quick ones before we look into our study today. I'm not trying to... You just take it for what it's worth. I hope that you can hear past CNN and Fox News and you can hear the Spirit of God. Because CNN and Fox News are not going to do you any good. But the Spirit of God can. He'll change your life. But one of the areas that I feel like we as Christians, especially my, uh, my slice of Christianity, we have a reputation of not caring about the environment. And I just can't get past the fact that as I read Genesis 1 and 2, one of the things that God says so clearly to His image bearers, He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you this, this creation. But I want to make you, you are to rule it. You are to be responsible for it. You're to take care of it. And I have to ask myself how good a job I'm doing. How good a job you're doing. Now don't go crazy. I'm not talking about any specific thing. But I do have to ask myself, and I wish you would do, do I treat God's creation like I would want you to treat my living room if you came to my house for dinner? And I don't know all that that means. It's a very complicated issue with lots of different perspectives and I don't have simple answers for difficult, complicated issues. But I would tell you that if you read the parables of Jesus, they will consistently declare to you that we are going to live forever with the world that we have been given. Are we handling the world that we've been given in a way that we'll be pleased of forever. If 
Yeah, we can move on. Second issue that I think we have fallen on the wrong side of horribly, starting with me. It's just the idea that God created us in the image of God. It's a big, big, big theological idea. Um, it has great theological significance. But today, I want to I want to emphasize this isn't even our lesson for today. I just can't help it. Today, the one thing that I want you to understand, when you and I grasp what it means that we are created in the image of God. I cannot accept that you and I can land anywhere other than embracing the truth that there is no we and they. If we are all image bearers of God, then who's the they? If I'm the we, who's the they? If everybody that I meet, red and yellow, black and white, everybody I meet is an image bearer of God, then aren't we all the they's? I, I just I was thinking about the father in the story of the prodigal son. Which, in the mind and the heart of the father, which one of those sons was the we? And which one of those sons was the they? No, they're both we's. They're both we's. And yet we, I, and my daughter and my wife, they're so faithful and kind and diligent and persistent to try to drag me out of the stone age into the into the light but it's so hard for me not to look at people as we's and they's and you can fill that in with whatever you want it is incredibly significant that when the Bible was written everybody made a big deal out of your bloodline you had these royal bloodlines, these nobility bloodlines, your national bloodline. That we, we live in a country that was founded on the idea that all men are created equal and that people from every place on the planet could gather and live and be treated good and well and right. But that's not the, that is not an that's a new idea. When Jesus walked the earth, when Abraham walked the earth, when the Old and the New Testament were written, people did not believe that. And so when the Bible says, like in Isaiah 58, don't treat foreigners differently from yourselves, for they are your own flesh and blood. What? You mean people in India and in Africa and in China and in Brazil, and in Brazil they are my own flesh and blood? Nobody believed that. Nobody, that was radical thinking. And yet, 
God declares through Isaiah that the foreigner that you meet, he is your own flesh and blood. Paul said it this way in Acts 17, From one person God made all the peoples of all the nations on the earth. Where's the they and the we? There is no they and we. We are all image bearers. When I look into your face, or your face, or Brenda, your face, do I see my Father's eyes? Do I see that we have infinitely more in common than not? And that principle that we are created in the image of God is in no way changed or lessened because you and I disagree passionately on some issues, cultural issues of our day. It didn't change it at all. Well, you can take that home and well, I would say put it in your pipe and smoke it, but some of y'all are doing that, so I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Just go home and think about it. How about that? Um, one of the things that we have talked about for a few weeks is this idea that God create, he, he made creation for Adam and Eve And he made it to be a place of blessing. A place of blessing for everyone that lived there. You might think, well, that's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. Because you understand when the Bible was written, both the part Moses wrote and the part that the gospel writers wrote, to hear me say that God made the garden, the creation, for everybody to enjoy equally. Everybody. Most people would have disagreed with that. Adam, sure. He's the man. And he came first. You know, the man. The, the man... He's supposed to enjoy creation because he's the man. The stronger. Supposed to enjoy creation. It's supposed to be a blessing to him because he's strong. The one that came first. I was here first. So I should enjoy that which God has created. That should be a blessing to me. The first, the strongs, the haves. They should enjoy the blessings. But what about the seconds? The ones that came later, like Eve. 
the weaker, the have-nots. I want you to just think with me today for a few minutes about how God created the garden to be a place of blessing not just for Adam but for Eve. Not just for the first but those that came later. Not just for the strong but the weak. Not just for the haves but the have-nots. A world that is truly a place of blessing has to, by definition, be a place of justice. Say it one more time. A world that, by definition, is truly a place of blessing. has to be also a place of justice for all. Where you have anything wonderful, but it lacks justice for all, it's no longer a place of blessing. It's no longer a place of blessing. All week long I've been asking myself three questions. And I want you to ask them too. Number one, what does the word justice mean? Number two, how would God define justice? And for me, most importantly, number three, am I a just person? Am I a just person? And my answer that I have come to the conclusion of, I'm ashamed of. There are many different views of justice. Just turn on the news any night and you'll get a <laughs> cornucopia <laughs> of, of definitions of justice. Some people would say that justice is giving equal opportunity to everyone. Other people would say that justice is the redistribution of wealth. The have-nots should be given more of the wealth of the haves. Some people would say that justice is giving each person what they deserve. And the list goes on and on and on. I've spent the better part of two weeks studying this idea in the Bible and I've looked up more verses than you could imagine. My conclusion is that when the Bible talks about justice, what it says about justice is so all-encompassing. It is so much, it's much more broad. The world will tell us what justice is, but they're slivers. Each, they give you a sliver of the pie. What the Bible talks about, when the Bible talks about justice, is a pie. A big pie. It's so 
all-encompassing and broad. It includes those three things that I mentioned, but so much more. And I just want to, real quickly, this won't take long, I just want to tell you a couple of things about what the Bible says about justice. Number one, the Bible would tell us that justice is more important to God than you and I can possibly imagine. When the Bible talks about justice, it consistently talks about justice in the same verse as loving and knowing and worshiping God. I thought that was the most important thing we could do. I thought knowing and loving and serving God, worshiping God, isn't that the most important thing that any person can do? You find me verses that talk about knowing and loving and worshiping and serving God. Look at the verse before it or after it or in the same verse and you will consistently find the challenge for you and I to be just. To be just. By example, Isaiah chapter 1. God says, your nation is desolate and your cities are burned and your fields are laid waste. Your lands are unsettled and vulnerable and unstable and worthless because you fill it with idols. Well, of course! Man, people running around worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and uh, all these... Doing all this, of course, that makes God mad. And, that, and then God starts zapping the land. And, amen? But that's not where he ends. Because you have filled it with your idols and with injustice. Stop bringing me your meaningless offerings and incense. I hate them. Your holy days and your feast and your assemblies, I hate them with all my heart. They've become a burden to me and I am weary. Can you imagine God saying, I'm weary? When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes. I'm not listening to you, for your hands are full of blood. You need to clean up your lives. You, I'm sorry, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the orphan and of the widow. What Isaiah is saying right there is, We have ruined our lives, our families, and our nation. Not just because we have turned away from God, but because we have turned away from the injustice all around us. God says there, you say you have a relationship with me, but you don't. You don't. 
That's the beginning of Isaiah. Let's get to the end of Isaiah. Isaiah 58, not the dead end, but close. Isaiah says, or God says, Declare to my people, Isaiah, their rebellion and their sin, for day after day they seek me. They're eager to know my ways as if they were a people who want to do right and have not forsaken the commands of God. Sound pretty spiritual. Sound like us. They ask me for just decisions. Lord, show me the way. Show me what to do, Lord. I want to do it your way. I want to follow you. I want your will more. Give me Jesus. When I wake up, when I live, and when I die, give me Jesus, Chris. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager to come near to me. They ask, why have we fasted and humbled ourselves? But God, you haven't noticed. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And you exploit those who work for you. Your fasting ends in quarrels and strife and conflict and violence. You cannot fast like this and expect for me to hear you. Is this the kind of fast that I want? People acting all humble, bowing in prayer, lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? Do you think that's acceptable to me? Here's the kind of fasting I want. Loose the chains of injustice and the cords of bondage. Set the oppressed free and break down all that enslaves. Share your food with the hungry. Provide for the poor wanderer with shelter. Clothe the naked and don't turn away from the foreigner who is in need. For he is your flesh and blood. You might say, well, now, Larry, that's Old Testament. We're New Testament people. Amen. Jesus' half-brother James says in chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you claim to have faith but you have no deeds? Can that faith save you? Suppose someone, without food or, you, suppose someone is without food or clothes. If you say to them, go in peace, keep warm, warm well fed, and well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. And John says in 1 John 3, If you have material possessions and see someone in need, but do not have pity on them, how can God's love be in you? Dear ones, we must not love with words. We must love with actions and truth. What's James and John saying? People that really have a relationship with God, they cannot witness injustice. Poverty, need, alienation, marginalization, prejudice, injustice of all kinds. People that have a relationship with God cannot witness that and it not do something to them at their core. 
Micah chapter 6. God told you what is good and what he requires of you, and that is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. We are to... The real wording there in, in Micah 6 is do justice. We are to do justice. It's not a feeling. That's the, that's the thing is that it's not a feeling. It's not I see things that are bad, that are wrong, that are, that are, that are wrong on TV and it makes me mad. It makes me sad. It, 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 it gets down. Yay for you. But that's not what God says. God says we're supposed to get up and do something. It's the doing that matters, not the feeling of annoyance or offense or aggravation. After looking at all those verses on justice, I came to the conclusion that justice, biblical justice involves three things. And I'm just going to give them to you real quickly. Number one, the Bible would declare that God's view of justice involves treating people all equally. Let me say one more time. The Bible would declare that God's view of justice includes treating all people fairly or equally. Look at what uh, Leviticus 19 says. Don't pervert justice by showing favor to the poor or to the rich. Don't favor the poor because they're poor. Don't favor the rich because they're rich. Judge everyone equally. Leviticus 24 says, You must have the same law for the foreigner and the native born, for I am the Lord your God. God wants you and me to treat everyone equally. Do we get that? Do we understand that? That idea was revolutionary in the day that the Bible was written. You had one set of laws for people that were born in your land, and you had another set of laws for people that were born other places. You had one set of laws for people that had one color skin, and you had another set of laws for people that had another color skin. Bank accounts, whatever it was, when you found areas of difference, those differences allowed for there to be different laws for different people. That's the way it worked. And yet God declared, that's wrong. Don't you act like that. Don't you treat people that way. And this premise was always the same. Do you not remember where you came from? When I tell you that you shouldn't treat your slaves differently than you treat your kids or your friends or your neighbors, 
Do you know why? Do you not remember where you came from? Remember when you were slaves in Egypt? Remember when you were slaves? You came from the same dirt. You had the same needs, the same problems, the same hopes, the same dreams, the same failures, the same guilt. You're the same as everybody else. What is your basis for treating people differently? Biblical justice includes and involves treating everybody equally. That's not where it stops. It goes on to say that biblical justice demands that we give special treatment to people who aren't given justice. To the poor, the needy, the weak, the helpless, the powerless, the disenfranchised, the neglected, the marginalized. Listen, is that what Zechariah says? Administer justice and mercy and compassion and be sure the widow and the orphan, the foreigner and the poor are not oppressed. Solomon said in chapter 31 of Proverbs, Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of the destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Don't just have a tear of sympathy. Speak up. Do something. Stop feeling bad for people that are in bad circumstances. Isn't that sad? Bless their hearts. Solomon says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of the destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. What is God saying there? True biblical justice is not just treating people equally. It is. But it's also giving special treatment to people who need special treatment. He's saying don't just speak up for people that, that are rich. Don't speak up for them. Why? They don't need anybody to speak up for them. Raise your hand if you need somebody to speak up for you. Come on, I want to see. I'm not sure I can count that high. Let's all raise our hands. Everybody that does not have somebody to speak up for them, raise your hand. No. The reason God doesn't tell us to speak up for each other is because we don't need it. Rich people don't need somebody to speak up for them. God wants us to speak up for the people at the bottom, not the people at the top. There are Corey B. Trotts will take care of them. Or whoever. Give you two verses that ought to rattle your cage. Proverbs 14, verse 31. Oppressing the poor insults their maker, but helping the poor honors God. Do you hear that? When I oppress somebody who is poor, I wrong somebody that is poor. I mistreat somebody that is poor. God says, you are insulting me. Proverbs 19 says, whoever is kind to the poor 
lends to the Lord. Do something nice for somebody that is in need, that has no justice, that's being treated wrongly. I take it as you did something for me. I owe you one. Do you understand what those two verses say? What those two verses say is absolutely revolutionary. We just assume this stuff. But this is not the way the world was, and it's really not the way the world still is. What God is saying in those two verses is that He identifies with the poor. God identifies with the poor, not the rich. And that ought to scare the mess out of each one of us. God doesn't identify with you and me. God identifies with people that have lives where the blessings that He created for His image bearers to enjoy and operate in, where there's a deficit. That's, where God, that's the people that God identifies with. My wife made me watch this show that I... Actually, she made me watch two shows in a row that I did not want to watch, but I wound up loving them. One was The Crown, and the other one was uh, Downton Abbey. I, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, kill me. But they, and then we're watching this show right now called The uh, Crudball. Uh, the Last Run. It's about a Vikings and living in England. Anyway, it's, a show, it's about England. All, all three of those shows are about England. And I'm, I'm pro-England. Yay, Margaret Mar Thatcher. You know, I think they're the great England. But one of the principles that you hear in those shows is a principle that has operated and controlled and dominated the thoughts and the values of mankind pretty much forever. And that is that God identifies with the rich. God puts the rich in power. God hears the rich. He blesses the rich. He protects the rich. God, people are, the people at the top are by definition closer to God. God's up there. The rich are up there. They're closer to God than I am. But what God is saying in Proverbs is He doesn't identify with the rich. He identifies with the poor. That's what the disciples, they were as confused about that as everybody else. Remember when Jesus told the disciples, uh, it is easier for a, rich man, uh, for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle? Or it's easier, wait, how did you say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, sorry, than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. What he's saying is, is that being wealthy does not give you an edge. It does not impress God. It gives you no benefit at all in, in God's kingdom. And do you know what the disciples said? You know, do you remember what the disciples' response was? Then who in the world can be saved? What they were saying was, of course the rich have a benefit. God favors them. He loves them. He hears them. He identifies with them. And Jesus is saying, you could not have it more wrong. God doesn't identify with people with hands that are full. He identifies with people 
with hands that are empty. The last thing, and I'll end. Biblical justice demands that we treat everyone equally. Biblical justice demands that we give special treatment to people who have got a justice deficit, that have got a blessing deficit, who have got empty hands. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like, they have little of which I have much. And the last thing that the Bible says about justice is, God wants me and you to sacrificially do something about it. It is not enough that I feel bad. It is not enough that I give my leftovers. I've got a few extra bucks that I, I wound up not being able to spend this week on, crap, uh, on stuff. Here. I'll give you my leftovers. I'll give you my crumbs. Biblical justice declares that God wants us to do more than that. That's why Job, if you read the book of Job, which is a hard book, but what's not hard is if you read Job chapter 29 and chapter 31, you know what Job, Job the Bible says was the most righteous man that lived on the earth at that time. And you know what Job said? In chapter 29 and 31, you go home and read it. He says, a righteous person will find ways to give justice to those who have none. Job says that it is a duty and a responsibility to treat people justly and to give people justice that do not have it. Second Corinthians chapter 9 says this, God has blessed you with provision and abundance so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on all occasions and your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. True justice, biblical justice, justice in the eyes of God, treats everybody equally. But it gives special treatment to those who have a justice and a blessing deficit. And it feels the obligation, the responsibility. It's not just if I feel. I read just the other day in the paper, maybe yesterday or the day before, one of the richest men in the world went to another one of the richest men in the world. This just happened this week. And said, I got a bunch of charitable uh, organizations and opportunities. I want you to give a bunch of money to these things. And you know what the, this other rich dude, one of the richest men in the world said? No thanks. I ain't giving you jack. Do you know what? That makes perfect sense to me. 
These are not Christians. These are not believers in Jesus. These are not followers of Jesus. I, I, that, I, I went to school. I paid my dues. I worked my rear end off. I made good decisions. I created great businesses. And I've made a boatload of money. And it's mine. And I'll use it as I will. Makes perfect sense to me. As long as you're not a follower of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. And what the Bible declares is that if I have any money, it's because God provided it for me. He gave me the desire to make it, the ability to make it, and the opportunity to make it. He gave me parents and schools and environments where I could become successful. And with that blessing comes responsibility and obligation. And if you and I, if you and I can live our lives day in and day out and not feel that weight and not be compelled to help. And there's a million ways. I'm not, I'm not about to take up an offering uh, for, you know, some special thing. Okay, don't get nervous. There's, but where if I don't feel that weight, that responsibility, that obligation, and I can live my life just saying, thanks God, I'm blessed, thanks God. The Bible would declare that if I can do that, I'm not just stingy. I am unjust. I am unjust. Okay. It's a big deal to God that the beneficiaries of His grace Show justice to those who have a justice deficit, a blessing deficit. It's a big deal to God. And I thought he wanted us to be reminded of that today. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. You know what you're doing when you walk up here? And you take this symbol of the body and the blood of Jesus. You're saying that you have been blessed with eternal life, with the forgiveness of your sins, and with a relationship with the God of the universe. You're also declaring that you have been given a gift that you didn't deserve, it's changed your life for good. That's what you're doing when you come up and take that. Let it also be a reminder that God wants us to share out of the goodness and the abundance that He has given to us. He wants us to share with others. You think about that today. You come.